Welcome to Pilates Elephants. I'm here with Natalie. Natalie, good to be with you. Good to be with you too, Raf. So, uh, how safe is Pilates, do you reckon? Is it pretty dangerous? It depends. You're asking me because I think it depends on who you ask. I think Pilates is really, really safe. All Pilates. But isn't the reformer this inherently dangerous machine that requires someone with thousands of hours of training and experience to operate safely without losing an arm? Um, I think maybe some people in, in, in the industry feel that way, but I think you and I are kind of on the inside of this joke and just kind of silently laughing because we think that's a ridiculous notion. All right. So what's the outs? Talk to me, talk, talk me through the joke from the outside then. Why are we having this conversation? Mm, we're having this conversation, um, maybe inspired by influencers in the Pilates industry who really feel like you need a certain kind of training, an X amount of training hours in order to properly and safely instruct the general population uh, in using this sacred machine. I'm talking about the reformer, but it could be other things too. I mean, Pilates, there's so much apparatus, right? I think even without even just mat work, like I see, I see fairly regularly on Pilates uh, websites. I do sort of look at Pilates websites fairly regularly, and on Instagram, you know, our instructors are certified, fully certified. So your your safety is our priority, and it's like okay. I mean, I, I appreciate that when the airlines say that. You know, like I want, I want those airlines to be prioritizing my safety, but like Pilates, I don't just, I just don't perceive it as a dangerous environment. You know, it's air conditioned, lots of soft padded surfaces. We're lying down most of the time. You know, it's like, it's kind of like one of the safest environments I can imagine really. No, it's really true. It's really interesting to me because there are times when I talk to um, other instructors, but particularly when I talk to our students and some of them, you know, they, they come from all over the place. We teach all over the world. And some of them, when we talk about, you know, what is the most important priority when we're working with clients and a few of them will say safety. And it's always interesting to me. Like, I just want to sit down with them and say, tell me more about that. You know, what do you mean by safety? And I think that there is inherent in our industry and in our community, this idea that Pilates and movement are dangerous. Yeah, and if you if you do it wrong, somehow it's like you know if you if you don't have the correct expert guidance, you might somehow move wrong and then throw something out or break something or cause some kind of irrevocable you know, harm. It, it's such a weird sort of a concept. It's a weird thing. And I think also in social, uh, you know, when you put yourself out there in social media, I think one of the biggest dangers in my mind, I'm not even being facetious, I'm being for real. Like in my mind, one of the biggest dangers of putting yourself out there and showing your practice, um, let's say on Instagram, is the danger of being pulled over by the Pilates police. Have you ever been pulled over by the Pilates police? If I ever am, I make sure I keep both my hands in, in plain sight. And I don't make any sudden moves. And I follow all instructions. <laughs> Given to me by a member of the Pilates Constabulary. 
it it's uh it's such a, it's such a it's a kind of an intriguing sort of observation to me this this whole notion of safety being you know of such primary importance you know like you would you would expect that in i don't know if i was going on a safari across the savannah in africa you know with lions 10 feet away or abseiling you know or scuba diving uh, you know mountain climbing you know uh, safety very very important you know, like I want like people to check their equipment trip three times and have it certified and checklists and all of that stuff. Though, but those are genuinely environments in which catastrophic accidents are possible, you know, and not even possible, but like if you don't do the right things, they're probable. You know, if you don't have the right safety equipment and, and know how to use it properly, abseiling is a very dangerous thing to do. And so, but but in Pilates, it's, it's so it's so perplexing to me that people think that exercise is potentially so dangerous when it's just like it's it's contrary to the evidence of our senses. It's like well, we you know like you bend over and get the pot out of the bottom drawer in the morning before you make your breakfast or whatever. It, it's and yet, and most of us do that without thinking about our spinal alignment or pelvic floor contraction or whatever it may be. And yet, when we lie on our back on a padded surface in an air-conditioned Pilates studio, suddenly we think we, if we lift our leg without having our spine in a perfect position, you know, some kind of catastrophe might ensue. Yeah. I remember one time I was at a Pilates studio. I was just a guest. I wasn't signing up for a membership, but my friend... Uh, was a member there and she invited me to go along with her. And so, you know, even though I was, I'm a Pilates professional, it, the the rule in the studio is that you have to go to the introductory beginner course, which was fine. You know, it's fine. And I remember the, the teacher, as part of his introductory speech, he started off by saying, it's really important before you get on the machine that I tell you some of these things so that you don't die. He actually said that, so you don't die. And I thought to myself, um, I, I don't think that's a good way to start. Like, I didn't say it out loud. And of course, like, I just kind of laughed it off. Like, haha, that, that's kind of funny. Except it's not that funny because it, <laughs> it's, it's not true, first of all. It's not true. But then also, you know, I think about the clients that we end up having who actually are fearful of moving, that's not a helpful thing to say, nor is it true. Um, yeah. Anyway. There are some safety considerations when working on a reformer in particular, shall we say, but they're all to do with what I would just think about as you know, basic workplace health and safety. It's like, right, don't leave all the springs off the reformers when the clients come into the room and then allow them to step onto the carriage with no springs on the carriage, uh, you know don't leave crap lying on the floor where people can trip over it. Uh, you know, like when you're doing a high kneeling exercise for the first time, you know, you need to warn people of the, you know, balance challenges and have them you know, ready to sit down if they need to, if they have a balancing rather than pushing their hands forward. Like, and we've talked about this before when we talked about prenatal Pilates. So I think there are some safety, genuine safety considerations on the reform, but they're just basic 
safety considerations. I mean, there are con- safety considerations when using a glass to drink from, you know, don't drop it on your foot. Um, don't put boiling water into it. Uh, you know, most of them are fairly common sense and can be taught to someone inside of five minutes. You know, they're, they're like, don't stand on the carriage when there are no springs on it. Okay, great. You know, there's not a lot more to know about that. You know, there's not some like deep, you know, learned tome that you need to ingest in order to understand that or, or do that with your clients. So, you know, I think this, this idea that you must have extensive certifications and thousands of hours of experience in order to be safe on a reformer, it can't be based on, you know, okay, let's not step on the carriage when there are no springs on it. You know, <laughs> like it can't be based on that. So it must be based on some notion that if we exercise wrong, you know, if we put our body in the wrong position or if we don't stabilize something correctly, then we might do harm. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said about the balance issues, you know how I feel about standing on a bed. Like it's it's kind of in vogue right now. And I think that there are probably a lot of Pilates instructors on Instagram who have plenty of experience who are doing it. I don't have anything necessarily against it. I think for me, the bigger issue I have is if you are not thoughtful about who your audience is, you know, like most of us who follow other Pilates instructors, to me, if I see a Pilates instructor standing on a moving bed, I feel like, okay, you're trying to show me what you can do. But if my mom were to see that, that would be a different story. You know, like that's not the right audience. Mom, please don't stand up on a bed. You, you don't do that. Right. So the balance issues, I think the, that's a real safety concern. And it could be anybody. It could be someone who is new to Pilates. It could be or a, new, a new instructor or a very seasoned instructor. Shit happens. Like, it happens all the time. But going back to what you said second about um, exercise being inherently dangerous because you're not in the right posture or, um, like, if the spring tension is wrong. Like, that to me, again, is really nonsensical because if the spring tension is too heavy, You'll have a client who just can't do it. We've all done that. We've forgotten to change the springs in arm circles. And it's like, oh, you're sweating bullets right now because we forgot to change the springs from footwork <laughs> to arm work. It, nothing bad happens. They just can't do it. Or they do a few and they're like, holy shit, I can't do this anymore. And maybe they pull up sore the next day, but it's like, no big deal. It's just not. Right. And, you know, maybe the other way, if you were doing something with a quarter spring on and then you went to uh, kneeling arm work and you're like, okay, everybody, kneel up high, push your arms forward. It's like, yeah, I can imagine a situation where that person overbalances because the resistance is unexpectedly light and the reformer moves underneath them very fast. But again, that's a basic WHS, workplace health and safety thing that, you know, I think there are a very small, you know, list them on one hand sort of number of exercises where you do need to give a little safety preamble, like when you're doing side splits on a light spring, step onto the platform before you step onto the carriage. When you're doing a high kneel, you know, don't reach your hands out to save yourself, move slowly, sit down if you get into trouble. You know, like there are a few exercises that fall into that category, but like they're literally a five second preamble you know, before you teach the exercise, plus a little bit of discrimination about who you give the exercise to, like someone who's seven months pregnant, just don't give them a high kneel, you know, in a group class. 
someone who's you know, 75 years old and osteoporotic, don't give them standing on a car- on a moving carriage, you know, like, but this is, this is pretty common sense stuff. I think it's not, doesn't require great intellectual prowess to, to grasp. No, it's common sense stuff. And it's stuff that we teach within the course and make sure that it's been reinforced. You don't need to have tens of thousands of hours in order to keep people safe. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back for, for those listeners who may have, who may understand what real or Instagram posts we're talking about, everything about it just really was very perplexing to me. And the other thing that was perplexing is reading the comments and seeing kind of the split of people who either agreed with it and then people who didn't agree with it. Because uh, that's my favorite thing to do is reading the Talk comments. Talk to me about those comments. That that fascinates me too. So this was uh, like, this was Rail Iskowitz, right? From Bassey Pilates. He did, a, he did a reel on Instagram. I think I saw it a couple, maybe a month or, or more ago that he was talking about a reformer and saying, oh, this is such an amazing piece of equipment, but it's also like, if you don't use it properly, you know, it can be dangerous. And you, so you need someone who's like, you know, well-qualified and, and experienced uh, to teach you on this piece of equipment. Otherwise, you know, you could get into trouble. Words to that effect. Right. Well, and well-qualified is a is a gentle and a generous way to put it. He was, in my mind, here's my bias. He was hyperbolic in what he was asking, basically saying, you know, like instructors need thousands of hours before you can say that you are properly trained to use this piece of equipment. So the two camps of people obviously were the yeses and the noes, you know, the people who are like, yes. Um, and I think, you know, like without, I don't know if we're going to be able to, I'm not, I don't know that I'm going to be able to avoid politics in this, but there are people in the industry who feel like you are not a proper instructor unless you have 450 hours or some arbitrary high number like that. And it seems to me like what they're actually doing is taking a dig at programs that are less than that. So that's that to me is one of the reasons why there were people who agreed. It's just like, yeah, it's and and I hear this, I this is part of the screening process. It's really typical in America to see a very standard um, job post that says in order to apply, you need to have a 450-hour comprehensive training. And one of the things that Adam McAtee will say is, "Do you would you rather do a 450-hour program that's 450 hours of like pseudoscience and like old science versus you know a 200-hour program that's like cutting edge?" So that's one one thing. I think there were people who really agreed with that because they're of the camp that you need. X amount of hours in order to be legitimate. Um, and then, of course, on the other side, well, and I'm trying to think of there, uh, there might be other reasons. I mean, that aside, it's just like, I, I feel like people do, there are people in our community who feel like Pilates and movement is dangerous. <laughs> just, it's, it's dangerous and we could hurt people. I mean, the... That one class that I took where he said to me, like, you can die in Pilates. And I just was just like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not a way to um, get new business. Like, why would you say something like that? It's not even funny. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that whole, you know, 450-hour thing, there are a couple of 
couple of uh, reasons I think, or things that contribute to people saying that. So I think, and you know, I'm I'm mind reading here, right? So I could well be wrong, but my perception is like for the people in the comments, maybe that there's they've got no kind of commercial vested interest or anything. They're just kind of commenting on a Facebook post or Instagram post or whatever it is. There, I feel like it's a for a lot of people it's a it's a fear based thing and i i had a conversation um you know uh recently with naomi defabio from our team about what is pilates and we kind of just went it was we didn't really come to a great conclusion <laughs> that's what she are. said <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the things that that struck me during that conversation was this idea of this credentialing idea, and in, it's not just in Pilates, like it's in every field where there's credentialing, is essentially established by the incumbent people to make it harder for other people to get in, right? So if you think about it in the case of Pilates, right, Joseph Pilates never had a teacher training program. He never, like, certified anyone, gave them a certificate. Romana taught people, but she didn't really have a formal program. She kind of just apprenticed people. Right, and then the people that, and you know, the other of the elders taught people as well. But I'm more familiar with Romana's kind of, you know, lineage, I guess. Um, and then the people that she taught, amongst them Moira Stott, had you know, eventually had teacher training programs and sort of formalised it and put together, you know, workbooks and course notes and all of the and certificates with a logo on it, signed by Moira, and all of that stuff. And we do that now as well. You know, we have those things. Um, but originally, Pilates was never credentialed. Like it was just, you did Pilates and then after a while you thought, oh, I kind of think this is pretty awesome. I'll go and teach some other people how to do it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, there was no rules about who could and couldn't teach. And, but now we have like incredibly strict rules about, you know, who could and couldn't teach you know when i say rules i mean not legal rules but just kind of like some people try and uh try and enforce you know social norms around you know who can and can't teach there's no there's no legal restriction in any jurisdiction that i'm aware of in terms of who can call themselves a pilates teacher and who can't so i think it's sort of like well these people get in there without any credential it's and then they make a credential so that other people can't get in. It's like pulling the ladder up after you. It's like the baby boomers who bought their, you know, downtown Manhattan three-bedroom penthouse in 1950 for like $20,000, you know, and, you know, now that there's, you can't even buy like a one-car garage in the, the sticks for 10 times that. It it's it just it's it strikes me as I think there are some good things to good there are some good elements to credentialing like I think uh, it I probably do appreciate going to an instructor who has had some form of training as opposed to someone who's literally never stepped foot in a Pilates studio, um, but I would like to think that. If, it, if the market were completely opened up, right, as like literally anyone could just call themselves a Pilates instructor, well, actually, technically, we kind of are there anyway, right? And so 
there are, if someone opened up a Pilates business and they literally had never done a Pilates class, never even seen Murray Windsor on, you know, late night TV or anything like that. All right. Well, their Pilates classes would probably be pretty shit and they probably wouldn't do very well in their business. Like, <laughs> so they, they wouldn't be open very long. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, uh, anything that they would, I mean, I guess there are, you know, like a few minor safety considerations, like we said about balancing on the carriage and whatnot aside, like any exercise that they could get you to do really wouldn't pose any kind of threat or risk for the vast majority of people. Unless I was seeing people who had significant pre-existing health conditions, which really general Pilates instructors shouldn't necessarily be working with anyway, if, you know, depending on the severity of the condition. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure quite if I'm advocating we should just do a free-for-all and do away with all kind of credentialing, but I feel like it's in a large part, there's a significant component of kind of like, you know, pulling the ladder up after you. Oh my gosh, I have so many things I want to respond to with all the things that you just said. I think the first thing I want to say is, uh, listeners, the Pilates industry is unregulated. <laughs> so this whole idea of like 450 hours, that is an arbitrary number based on a an organization that has deemed itself the the leader of quality control for the Pilates industry. And in my mind, quality control, the number of hours that you have trained and taught is only one component of quality control. Because Raf, you've been, you've hired, you've hired teachers and there are teachers who look great on paper and are shit teachers. It's just one thing. I mean, like you said, it is ideal to have somebody who is trained and it is ideal to have somebody with experience. Like you as a hiring manager probably have some idea of the number you, you know, like the the training that you'd like to see and the number of uh, years of experience. But beyond that, you're going to vet this person by actually watching them teach. That's going to be the most important part. You're going to see what they're caseload is like and what their client retention is like. There's so many other ways to determine quality control beyond the 450 hours. And I think the other thing with- Oh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, when, I, when I'm looking to hire, uh, and this is, I think there's, when I'm looking to hire, I want to see someone teach, right? That's ultimately, it's like, I'm not even interested in really in talking about how many hours of this or that or the other I've done. So until I've seen them teach, because like you say, you can have a thousand hours and be shit, or you can have 200 hours and be amazing. And so I just, I just want to see like, how do you teach? And I can tell generally within 30 seconds of watching someone start to teach, whether they're going to be a good fit or not, you know? Uh, and I think that, the, uh, and I, in fact, I know that I'll, because I've talked to multiple studio owners about this who are struggling to hire instructors. So the number one thing that studio owners say to me again and again and again and again and again is I can't find good staff, right? And so when I look at those ads on whatever the Pilates website is, I can't remember the name of it in the US, but where they advertise those Pilates jobs, it's like, yeah, they, all of the ads start with looking for a 450-hour comprehensively certified instructor. And and I think that is such a pro forma, you know, way to write an ad. 
like I'm looking, there's like 50 job ads. They're all the freaking same, right? And so that says to me that these people don't know how to write a job ad. Like if there's 50 job ads, they're all the same. It's like, well, I'm a candidate. You know, tell me why I should come work for you, you know? And if your ad looks exactly the same as the other 49 ads, it's like, well, you're not differentiating the workplace. Nothing's standing out to me. So no wonder you can't find good staff. <laughs> so, and, and dear listener, if you've wrote, if you've written that ad 450 hour, I'm, I'm not having a go at you. It's, it's a skill gap, right? It's just a skill. It's a skill gap that what you're hearing in my voice is not, uh, is not, uh, derision. It's passion. Like, it's a skill gap. People don't know how to write a job ad, and that's why they're struggling to 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 attract those staff that they want. And you know, go back and listen, do listen to the episode I, I did with Carla from Quiet Bodies, where she had this exact problem, and this was exactly what she wrote in a job ad: four hundred fifty hour comprehensive, blah 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 blah. But we actually talked through, and it turned out what was important to her. She didn't give a shit about the four hundred fifty hours. She wanted somebody who was aligned with her values and her belief system around teaching and who was, you know, flexible and creative and, you know, wanting to grow and learn. Like, and then I said, well, what if someone, that person doesn't know the Cadillac? She's like, oh, I can just teach them. You know, I can teach them the Cadillac. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so it's like, at the end of the day, people are writing this 450 hours because they look at, they're like, oh crap, I need to hire an instructor. I don't know what to write in my job ad, so I'll go and look at a few other job ads. What do they say? Oh, 450 hour, 450 hour, 450 hour. So they're like, okay, I guess that's just what you write in a job ad, so I'm going to write that. But it's like, dude, that is the wrong way. To, you want your ad to say whatever the others aren't saying, you know, because that way it stands out. So I'm sorry for jumping on my, my soapbox there, but I think that whole 450 hour thing is, I, I can't remember the name of, it's got a name, right? But where basic, the effect, it's called the the, something or other effect. It's where basically everybody thinks that everybody else wants this thing, right? But nobody actually wants it, but everyone thinks that everyone else wants it. So they say they want it. And because everyone says they want it, everyone thinks everyone else wants it, but actually no one wants it. And this is the 450 hour thing, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, I think the term was called being a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what I'm dealing with right now with my two kids. It's like, why is your hair like this? Because everybody else's hair is like this. Why are you dressed like this? Because everybody else dresses like this. I'm thinking more like it's kind of like the North Korea effect, right? So, you know, if we lived in North Korea and it's not safe to say that we disagree with the government, right? So we all go around saying, oh, we think the government's amazing. And I, I hear you say that. So I think you believe it. And I don't believe it. And you don't believe it. But you hear me say it. So you think I believe it. So you're not... You're afraid to say to me that you don't trust the government and you don't agree with them because you think I'll denounce you because I'm always saying how great I think the government is. But I only say that because I think that's what you believe <laughs> and I don't want you to denounce me, <laughs> right? And so we end up both passionately agreeing that we hate the government, right? But both pretending to each other that we love the government and both believing each other that we love the government. And therefore, we never have the conversation. And the, it, it's so it's this phenomenon where, and then when it, yeah, so I think it's kind of the same thing in the Pilates. You know, I'm not, not uh, comparing Pilates to North Korea, but, <laughs> but this phenomena where basically everybody else seems to be saying, oh, 450 hours. And I don't really get that, what that's all about, but I guess that's just what I better say. You know, because I think that must be a really important thing because everyone else is saying it. 
you know? Right. I'm sorry. That's really too bad. No, you don't have to apologize. I'm just thinking I'm so grateful that we have a work environment where that doesn't happen. Because <laughs> that just sounds like the seventh circle of hell. Like everybody's miserable. <laughs> um, yeah, that 450 hour thing is really interesting. It becomes this this barrier to really great instructors. And, you know, I was thinking about, um, <clears throat> so at the studio I work for, we have a class for new clients. It's a new client class. And what we asked, we used to have them do like eight to 10 classes before they're able to get leveled up. And we've take, we've since taken away the leveled system. So now once you have taken a few new client classes, you're welcome to take whatever classes are available. But Back in the day when we would have this requirement where our new clients needed to take eight to 10 classes before they moved up, I cannot tell you how many clients I have talked to where they have stopped their memberships because they would book into eight to 10 classes with a specific instructor because it was the best time for them, but they couldn't get through to like class number four, they, they didn't want to survive because they hated those classes. And by and large, those classes were being taught by people who had like 15 years hour. of experience. Yeah. 450 hour certificate and like dozens of years of experience. Like these are clients coming to me saying, I wish that there were other options for classes because I booked into, you know, like six more of classes with so-and-so and I, I do not want to take class from this person anymore because it's awful. It's boring. We're not moving. We're just talking about neutral. We're talking about proper alignment. We're doing postural analysis. We're barely moving. Like I, she wouldn't let me up my springs like this. And this all goes back to safety culture. Like this idea that we have to have, we have to be a gatekeeper in the Pilates studio and the gatekeeping often has to do with safety culture and about being, you have to take these classes to be safe and we can't trust you to take anything beyond a beginner level class because it's not safe. And I think, um, let's talk about that, but I also wanna just go back to the original spirit, the original inspiration with that Instagram post by the founder of Bozzy. I just think, I don't know what his intention was, but what I do know is that fear sells. And um, yeah, fear sells. And I just, I'm so impatient with, with that idea in the Pilates industry because I just feel like the other thing that sells is movement optimism and getting people like really happy about moving and being free to move and trying new things and being curious. Like that's that to me is like, it's so much better to just say to your, clients like be curious be curious about your range of motion be curious with the amount of strength that you can have try out a spring setting if it doesn't work out what is the worst thing that can happen you don't like it or it doesn't work out then you just go back to two reds and a blue you know like what i don't understand what the big deal is but anyway okay i'm gonna get off my interesting now. that that figure you, that 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 uh, analogy you made about gatekeeping i think you're so right that, and I was just thinking about, well, when you were talking about the, I'm assuming the PMA or you know, whatever Pilates professional organization before, well, you know, you're saying, oh, they are mandating some arbitrary number, 450 hours. Well, that's just exactly what I was talking about before with the 
you know, pulling the rope up after you sort of thing, the, the gatekeeping, which is, well, who who is the PMA, right? They're a group of people who are super passionate about Pilates. Well, who's that? That's Pilates studio owners and Pilates educators. So they make the rules about what constitutes a suitable and adequate qualification. And guess what? It looks a lot like their qualification, doesn't it? Looks a lot like their qualification. <laughs> so it's like, well, hmm, not sure if there's a vested interest there or not, but um, yeah, it could could be. It's one possibility. Um, and and that that culture that you just pointed out, that parallel you made about the gatekeeping, it's like, well, now we as instructors, well, not you and not me, but like, you know, some instructors, I think there's a, a significant culture of gatekeeping clients of you must have this education about posture and alignment and muscle activation and exercise technique before you're qualified to do even the most basic exercises on the basic number of springs. And therefore, you must be subjected to eight weeks of interminable you know, boredom of being lectured about you know, some freaking alignment protocol before you can just jump on a reformer and do some footwork for fuck's sake no i know for fuck's sake that's right <laughs> well and that's that was the biggest complaint so um you know i i would i would have these clients come into my class i only teach on saturdays so if i had clients who can come in on the weekdays they would on the off chance come see me on a saturday and they would come in and the look on their face and like hey welcome to class um they're like Thinking, you know, I can see on their face like they're not excited. They're not happy to be here. And the first thing I say is, pick out your machine because we're going to get moving. Go grab water now or use the bathroom because this is a movement class. You're here for movement. Yes, you're a new client. Yes, I would like for you to get to know the machine a little bit because in a group class, um, it's easier for me as the instructor if my clients know a little bit about the different spring tensions they don't, if they know it, they don't have to ask my permission or I don't have to run over to their machine and help them move the foot bar down or up. You know, like if as an instructor, I, I like, I like being able to give them a little bit of that instruction so that they have a little bit of fluency, that they're a little bit more literate about the reformer, but a little bit. I mean, like we talked about before, whether or not at the end of the day, if they don't know the difference between the red spring and the yellow spring. It takes me all of two seconds to give them the option that that might work better. That's on me, right? Um, same thing with the foot bar. It takes me all of two seconds to go over there and just say, oh, it goes like this. That's that's all I need. Beyond that, it's like you said, work and health issues where it's just like you need to step your foot onto the platform before you put your foot on the bed get your keys out of the way because when you step down from the bed, you're going to eat shit because your keys are right where your foot is supposed to be. Like that can happen to me and you as very experienced Pilates professionals. Accidents happen. That can happen to anybody 450 hours or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think even with those spring settings, I mean, you know, you can just say, hey, everyone, we're going to do X, Y, Z exercise. If you're a beginner start on a yellow, you know, if you've done 10 or more sessions, try a blue, right? And then experiment and see how that feels for you. And if you need help, I'll come around and adjust it, you know? So you, like it literally can be that, that simple for people. I, I wonder what you think is 
like, you know, I mean, I see that parallel of that safety culture being like a gatekeeping of, you know, for clients in the same, in parallel to what the gatekeeping is for instructors by the sort of quote elders, you know, and I'm not talking to the, about the elders capital E, I'm talking about like the people at the top of the the status hierarchy in the in the Pilates, Pilates world. Yeah, but I don't think it doesn't strike me that that's like the genesis of it. I think the safety culture thing has a has a life all its own. Now, I wonder what you think. You know where you think that comes from. I'm going to guess, and I want to hear your your thoughts too. My guess is that when you look at the the history of Pilates, where there it started off with, well, and let's not talk about Joe because when Joe died they begged Romana to come back and take it over in Romana. I, I, to me, the most interesting stuff happens with Romana because what used to be like this bro culture, you know, like Joe's gym, you know, like push your head against the bed and like massive, like tactile cues. Um, as an aside, it was really funny. Naomi, uh, Naomi DeFabio sent uh, Phoebe and I this little video of Joe with tactile cueing, and she's taking a video of it with her phone. And like all I hear in the background is her giggling um, because it's so ridiculous. Like the way that he tactile cues, it's just like this guy would be in jail by now if he were doing if if he were doing this. Anyway, um, I digress. So. The interesting stuff to me happens when jo- Joe dies and Romana inherits the studio and all of a sudden you've got like this very, very heavily ballet influenced culture. It's dance culture. And, um, you know, Kyle Marsh would be such a great person to talk about dance culture and the way that dance pedagogy influences the Pilates industry where it's just like you have, there's such a hierarchy you know, like if you are the ballet master, like you can say and do anything and everybody below you is just a minion. So it's just like this whole idea that there's this authority figure and you need to follow this authority figure. So I think that's one way that's been in the Pilates industry has been influenced. <clears throat> it's not a democracy. And then in, and then I think the, the, you know, like in the what, 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I got to brush up on my Pilates history you get um, the Pilates method moves to the West Coast and all of a sudden there's uh, this marriage between Pilates and physical therapy. And I think physical therapy is an interesting, it's an interesting inflection point in our industry because that too involves expertise, somebody who has authority and expertise based on education. So I think those two things put together creates a really interesting community of people, people who are dance influenced and they have this hierarchy and this way of of organizing themselves in their in their culture. And then you have like the medical community and that in and of itself is a hierarchy as well. When you look at people and their expertise and the, all the letters and credentials behind their name. Where do you where do you think though this notion? I guess I mean it might have even come from Joseph, because like, I mean he never says anything about danger in his writings that I can recall, but he does say you know on several occasions in Return to Life like you know make sure you do the exercises and follow the instructions you know to the letter and exactly as written otherwise you'll lose the benefit of the exercises sort of thing if you do them improperly 
you know, um, which we now know is not true, you know, but he never, he never says you might hurt yourself, but he does say like, you might not get the benefit if you don't do them correctly. But I wonder where that notion came in that if you do the hundred wrong, you can hurt yourself, you know, or if you do footwork wrong, you know, if you don't have your pelvic position correct in footwork where there's virtually zero load on your pelvis, you know, you can, you can hurt yourself. Yeah. Where, where do you think that, that came from? I have no idea. I really don't. It's not unique to Pilates, right? But it seems to me what the four way stronger with this one in Pilates, you know, like, Yes, a little bit of it in in physical therapy, there's a little bit of it in fitness, there's a little bit of it in yoga, but it feels like it's turned up to 11 in Pilates. It absolutely does. I remember um, I have worked with a couple of physical therapists personally for my own stuff, and I remember both physical therapists would say to me, don't do this exercise like you're doing Pilates, please. Like, you're overthinking this. Don't do that. Stop correcting yourself. Breathe normally, please. Stop doing, stop bracing. Like, you know, this is before, this is all before um, my current, my current career. This is back when I was in the thick of uh, what I, what I like to call previous Pilates. That's, that's how I call, like, there's now Pilates and there's previous Pilates in my career. So back when I was like entrenched in previous Pilates, um, yeah, I would have my, my physical therapist. Which ironically was contemporary Pilates. That's true. That's true. Which, um, uh, never mind. I was going to say what I call contemporary. I don't call it contemporary Pilates, but if you want to know what I call it, please DM, DM me. I'm not going to say it on air because it's. I'm intrigued now. I'm going to DM you. <laughs> yeah, DM me. Um, uh, it has to do with a certain animal that no longer roams the earth. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I would have physical therapists who were actually helping me to rehab specific things say to me, you're overthinking this. Please cut it out. Stop doing that. Breathe normally. Stop doing that. So it's only if I feel like Pilates is just like we took the ball and we are just like running with it at full speed and we haven't stopped. We're so far up the field. We're past the goal line. We're up to the st- – we actually run through the stands out onto the street outside the stadium. We're now halfway out of the city. Yeah. But it's also, it's kind of one of those things where it's just like, it's a double-edged sword because we are, we are a small but mighty community full of very passionate people who like hold our beliefs very, very tightly. And, you know, we get very tribal about it. And I mean, we're doing it too. Like we have a whole podcast um, dedicated to our biases and, and, and the, the things that we, we love. So. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, obviously you and I are biased. But I think the, you know, the holding beliefs tightly thing is, I don't, I mean, I'm, that is kind of like what this podcast is set up to, to decrease, I guess, is like, I think you should hold a view with it, you know, strongly or weakly commensurate with the amount of evidence you have for that view and and you should be open to changing your mind you know when presented by compelling evidence and i think there are certain things that are not subject to evidence like i don't know what do you think is right and wrong you know in terms of just morals ethics 
but you know, when it comes to an empirical question, like, you know, it does doing footwork with your background and increase your chance of getting an injury. It's like, well, that's just an empirical question. We can actually do that experiment and find the answer. And so our view on that should be conditional on the strength of the evidence we have. And we should have no, I guess we should have no investment in the answer being one way or the other. It's like, well, the world is what it is, you know, it, the 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 universe and physics don't care whether we prefer the back straight or round. Like there's there's just an absolute actual truth to the matter somewhere <laughs> of like, is it or isn't it more dangerous to do footwork with your back rounded? And and that that universe is completely indifferent to our passion <laughs> about the topic. And so I think we should just like any amount of wanting it to be a certain way doesn't change the way it actually is, you know, like if it's snowing outside and you don't want it to be snowing outside, well, that's bad luck, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, no amount of saying, no, I'm really on a tropical island is going to change the fundamental reality there. There's a podcast that I listen to and I'm so sorry, I'm just going to space on it. Um, But there are two hosts. One is... Uh, a yoga professional and the other one is a yoga and Pilates professional. And one of their taglines is they hold strong, they have strong beliefs held lightly. And I really like that. Like you have strong beliefs held lightly. Don't be precious about things because the whole Is that Jenny Rawlings? No, it's not. It's not. But I do love her podcast. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look it up. It's, yeah, it's not. It's not. It's something else. Is it Jeremy LaVergia? Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. All right. Nope. I'll stop <laughs> but you know the whole point of the whole point of science is you're constantly trying to prove yourself wrong in my mind. It's just like you you're not trying to prove yourself right. You're just trying to see that you're not wrong. Like or you're wrong. And you know, just keep testing it over and over again. I think that's the best thing to do. And we talked about this, we've talked about this so many times. It's just like don't be precious about stuff because things change and that's a that's not a bad thing. Maybe don't print out things in stone blocks and that way it'll be you know don't don't be expensive with with the things you put down um because things change and then you're going to have to change everything but it's like let's be open to let's be open to changes. I I don't know why the Pilates industry seems so stuck, but then I also feel like they have conversations about this in physical therapy too, right? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a massive uh, conversation happening about this in the physical therapy world, and uh, I think it parallels what's happening in the Pilates world uh, pretty pretty much. Um, I think, uh, and and uh, you know, Adam McTee is has just finished, or he's just finishing his physical therapy doctorate, and a lot of the stuff that he's been exposed to in his doctorate is still like 25 years out of date, you know, um, which is crazy. It's just like in, insanity. So so what can a – I guess if I'm the, the Pilates instructor on the street, you know, if I'm the if – if I'm not an educator, I'm, I'm a Pilates instructor. I see clients, you know, Monday to Friday and, you know, I teach a class and whatever – 
like, and I've been brought up in this safety culture because if I was educated pretty much anywhere except for breathe in the last five or seven years, yeah, that was my upbringing in the Pilates world, most probably. And all right, so where, you know, where would I, where do I go to, you know, if I want to have strong views held lightly, which I really like, okay, and where do I go to, to educate myself on this stuff? Because there's so much competing information. There's so much noise out there. There are people saying, no, if you do it this way, your back will be damaged. If And there's other people saying, no, it doesn't matter. You know, that's, that's us, right? We're saying, oh, it doesn't matter. You can do it with foot, footwork with your back around or straight. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Whatever you like. Um, so, yeah, where does one where does one go? How, how does one navigate that situation? Um, well, my as a layperson and somebody who is not particularly overly passionate about all of this, because I just don't worry about things very much in terms of Pilates, but there's some easy things to do. You can listen to podcasts that, well, yeah, I, I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts and I was just telling you about my echo chamber. So my echo chamber is, is <laughs> it's just all the people who are fearless movers. Maybe, maybe that's my bias. Or I, it's that, definitely my bias, but being able to follow certain people, I obviously follow you, but all like, I like to look at the people who I trust, who are they following? Who, what are they listening to? Um, you could certainly go your own route and just start to do, you know, Google Google Scholar searches. But I would prefer to follow people who do that for me. So that would be you and Adam McAtee. <laughs> because first of all, reading the research is really dense. It's it's not for the it's. It's not meant for lay people. It's meant for other academics and researchers. And a lot of that stuff to me is, especially all the stuff in the middle, right? So like I, I, I read the abstract and I read the, the introduction and then I, and then I skim through all the pages in between where it's just like statistics that I don't understand anymore because it's been 25 years since I've been in college reading that kind of stuff. And then I read the I sometimes I read the method because I just want to see what they're up to and then I just read the discussion and then the conclusion. But there are people, what I'm saying is there are people out there who are already doing that basically for free, like you and Adam. Um, so that 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 to me is are some those are some easy things to do. Like listen to podcasts that that the people who you trust are listening to. Follow the people. Like Instagram's a fun place to be. I, I don't go beyond Instagram. I imagine that there are probably other places you can go for that kind of information. What 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 do you do? What would you say to students who want to learn more? I'd apply a critical thinking lens, um, epistemology, which is how you know what you know. I think is the the real core question here. I think we. It's easy to be overwhelmed by what someone knows and and not pay attention to their reasoning and how they arrived at that knowledge. And so to me, that is where I would start. And I think the first thing that I would do is check my own understanding. And the way you can do that, I think, uh, very uh, relatively easily and simply is to simply explain in words, either in writing or verbally, 
why you think something is a problem. So for example, if you've been teaching, dear listener, that you know doing footwork in neutral is important to for the safety of the low back, right? Well, can you articulate, you know, just in a a paragraph on a notepad or, you know, out loud to your mirror, why? Specifically why? Like what is the precise mechanism by which there is danger? You know, explain it to me like I'm a two-year-old. And a lot of the time uh, when I, this is a very, very powerful exercise, I think, because a lot of time we sort of, we think we have a knowledge about something, but it turns out we actually don't. And plenty of examples, but you know, if, if you, there's one experiment that you can do for yourself, like, you know, if I said to you, do you listen to like, do you know how a bicycle works? Right. You'd probably think, well, yeah, bicycles are pretty simple bit of equipment, right? It's got some pedals and a chain and, a, you know, wheels that go around when you're steering, you know, handlebars, steer it, right? All right, great. That's all pretty straightforward. Draw a bicycle, right? Now, if you go to draw a bicycle, what will probably happen is you'll draw it and you realize as you're drawing, you're like, oh, I'm not actually certain what bit goes here and which bit goes there. And then if you actually look at a picture of an, like a photo of an actual bicycle, you'll notice you've got some bits in the wrong place <laughs> on the bicycle. And that indicates that that bicycle that you drew, if that's the case, would not work, right? Which indicates that you don't understand how a bicycle works, right? So you've got this kind of vague concept of there's a chain and a wheel and whatever, but if asked to actually create a bicycle, you couldn't do that, right? You know, most of us anyway, right? Uh, and I think that's the same with, you know, things like, oh, well, you know, if you bend, it's bad for your discs. All right, specifically, how is it bad for your discs? You know, explain to me how that is bad, you know, why that is bad for your discs, you know. Um, and we've got this kind of generalized notion of it, but then when we actually go to try articulate it, it's like, yeah, I don't know where the bits go. <laughs> I can't make make a clear picture. And I think if you can't do that, if you can't draw that bicycle accurately so that it would work, right, <laughs> there's this great um, thing that goes around on social media right now and then of like a kid's drawing of an animal or a house or whatever, and then an artist's rendering of that same animal. And it's got these wildly distorted dogs and horses and houses with the chimneys off crooked off to the side and smoke going downwards or upwards or whatever. Um, yeah. And so they, these animals with three eyes on the same side of their head and <laughs> stuff like that. Anyway, so if if you can't draw that, if you can't articulate clearly, precisely how that is a problem, then that that that's that's a sign that you don't fully understand this thing, right? And you've just been mouthing something that other people have said because on a surface level it's plausible, but you don't actually get it at this point. And it's fine, you like it's totally there's no dishonor in not getting like stuff. Like I I don't know how like my hot water service works, you know, or you know, like there, there's lots of stuff I just take for granted, you know, that I would be helpless if left on a desert island with only a spanner and a screwdriver and a broken hot water service. Like I probably couldn't fix it, you know. So, so, so there's no dishonor in not understanding something, but I think it's very valuable to know what you actually do understand and what you don't understand. And when you don't, if you if you come if you realize that you don't understand something fully, right? Like you don't, I mean, I don't really care about hot water services and I've got no desire to go learn how one works, right? That's not something that I find to be very important. But if I was a plumber 
right? And I didn't know that. I would think like, oh, no, I really should know that, right? I really should know that. And and so if you're a Pilates teacher and you're telling people about holding their back in a certain way because it's dangerous if they don't, well, I think it's you should know that. You should be able to clearly articulate in anatomically accurate but plain language precisely why that is a problem, right? Not just like, oh, it's the discs or something, but it's like precisely explain to me the forces on the disc here. Why is that a problem? And if you can't do that, again, no dishonor, dear listener, but that you've you've discovered an opportunity for 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 growth, right? Here's your opportunity for growth. And so then you should seek out some information to understand why that is a problem, right? Go find out why is get someone who really knows, like a professor of biomechanics or something, go watch a video on YouTube of someone explaining precisely why that is a problem. And until you understand it and can explain it to someone who doesn't have a PhD in biomechanics, you know, like your partner or someone, you know, and they can go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I get it, right? At that point, then yes, you've 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 got a you know you've got an educated opinion on this thing. So I think firstly, check your own knowledge. You know, can you draw that bicycle? Can you articulate in one relatively concise paragraph why this particular thing is a problem? And the second thing is, when you know you you said Natalie, like uh, you know people you trust, and I have people I trust, and I use that same heuristic, you know, that same rule of thumb. I, I follow people who I trust and I look at, you know, I will be more trusting of information provided by people I trust than information not provided by people I trust. But I still do apply, like, you know, these people that I trust, I trust them because they give citations, right? <laughs> right. I, I don't just trust them blindly. The reason I trust them is because they show me, like, they say, okay, I know this thing and here's how I know it right? And here's the study. You can go look it up yourself. And often I do go look it up myself and I'm like, huh, yeah, that's true. That is what that study says. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, that would be a, a, a second heuristic that I would apply after you check your own knowledge is, is always think about when you're, ex- before you decide to accept information from somebody, like how do they know that? How do they know that? And there should that should be an absolutely routine question that you always ask. And it should be so routine that the person providing the information should just expect that you're going to ask them that. And they shouldn't, you shouldn't have to ask it because they right. should say, and here's how I know this. That's right. Here's my citation. That to me is something that I was thinking about as you were talking. It's like one of the things that I uh, and we've talked about this before, um, going into my first training program, and I think this is true for many training programs, their manuals do not have citations. And it did not, it wasn't a red flag for me. But like you said, if if there's a principle that's being shared, where did they get that information from? If I had asked that question, I would be in a completely different place now. If I had if I was thinking critically and said, where did you get this? Like, you're you're telling me here in the Pilates manual, I'm pointing at it because I actually have it right next to me. You're telling me here in the Pilates manual that a woman in a pregnancy cannot do feet and straps. Why? Like, what is that about? Or like you're saying here that if someone has scoliosis, I'm not supposed to move them in the curvature. Like, why? where did you get that information from? What is that about? Like, I would be a, a different person 
I think. Maybe I wouldn't have been a Pilates teacher if I had asked those questions because there were no citations in in the in my original training, nor were there citations in many of the other trainings, you know, workshops and things that I've taken. And that's something that I'm extremely picky about now. Um, if I'm going to a workshop, if I'm going to spend time and money on something, the first thing I'm going to ask is, can you please provide me a citations list so that I have it with me when I'm sitting down? Because if you haven't done that, I don't want to spend my time and money doing that because I I can't trust you. Yeah. I, I'm so with you. That's why I do virtually no external <laughs> education <laughs> workshops. Um and I would go further and say, and those citations, those and citations, just a list of scientific studies of how you know those things that you just, you know, shared. Those should be recent, like in the last five years, majority of them, and they should be systematic reviews, meta analyses, and clinical guidelines. The majority of them, not individual studies from nineteen ninety six. So yeah, I mean, I think that I think that kind of is the answer and i don't know to, to like how we how we solve this i think each person has to do it you know for ourselves but i think you and i and others you know um can promote this notion of holding you know strong strong ideas held lightly um and and ask you know asking you know, do you know, how do you know that when someone makes a claim, shouldn't be perceived as disrespectful in any way. It's just a genuinely curious question because if if I tell you something and I don't tell you how I know it and you just accept it uncritically, it was like, well, do you actually know that? I mean, you're just take, totally taking my word for it. And then you say you have to explain it to someone else. You've got no freaking clue why you believe this thing, apart from the fact that I said it. It's like, well, that that's to me that's you're doing yourself and your clients a disservice by accepting that uncritically like i wouldn't want a plumber who you know didn't understand hot water services but just knew how to follow the instructions on how to assemble one you know i want someone who who understands it back to front and knows why we put this screw in this way and so if we did it this other way, that's not a good plan and here's why. Or it is a good plan and here's why. Or if that screw's not in the kit, it doesn't matter because I can just put a bolt in there instead because I understand the principle of why we've got that thing in there. So I know which modifications and changes I can make to still achieve the intended outcome. So I think seeking for that understanding in yourself, I think, is the primary is the primary goal. But in order to have that, I think often we need to be more critical and when I say critical I mean that in the in the dictionary sense of uh, uh, you know appraising something's value as objectively as possible uh, we need to be to to think critically about the information that is provided to us and and the people that are making claims about you know we should or shouldn't do this thing because it is or isn't dangerous or safe yeah I, I think we should you i mean i was the same when when i did my training with stop pilates i asked questions like i remember doing my 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 cadillac chair and barrels course in toronto at stop pilates headquarters and asking my trainer there like oh you know 
how does this, because it was in the book, oh, the this exercise works the hamstrings, the blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, can you explain how this works the hamstrings? Because I can't kind of picture it in my mind. And the answer I got, I don't remember exactly what words she used, but it was, I remember being extremely dissatisfied with it. It was just some vague, like, no, no, it works the hamstrings. Don't worry about it. Sort of, you know, something like that, right? Or because the leg's extending or something like that. And, and it was just highly unsatisfactory to me because it didn't actually help me understand that it's like basically it's just saying just take my word for it right and i didn't i felt like i walked out of there knowing like okay here's what i'm supposed to say when someone asks me that question but i do not understand why i do not understand it i'm just parroting it you know and to me that was just that's highly unsatisfactory not just in terms of my own own understanding but i but i feel like well if 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 someone's there putting themselves forward as an educator teaching me this thing they should understand it five levels beyond what I under, they should already know the answer to the question I haven't even thought of yet, you know, like, and, and to me, obviously the only reason that she wouldn't answer that in a satisfactory way is she didn't know herself, you know? So to me, that was just a highly, that was a moment. I think that was a moment where I lost a lot of respect for that whole education system. I mean, a different perspective is that we're not plumbers. We're not pilots. We're not heart surgeons. We're not dentists. We're Pilates teachers. We teach movement. And at the end of the day, just getting people to move. First of all, Pilates is safe. (laughs) Secondly, the body is anti-fragile. Yes. Uh, And thirdly, people don't move enough in general. So if we can get people excited about moving and just moving, you know, one of the things that we, one of the big principles that we have in the certificate program, which I think is very controversial. It's controversial that in our certificate program, we don't go into any kind of deep dive in anatomy. And this is really um, kind of a, this is kind of a thorn in the side of a lot of our American students who are really used to a, a Pilates education system where there's a lot of anatomy. And I will tell you in my 450 comprehensive course, I did a year of anatomy, didn't learn a thing about it, remembered a few muscles here and there, but those must, the, the knowledge that I gained about those, the anatomy had, had no bearing at all on my ability to teach well. I'm, I'm not saying to teach, to teach well. So one of the things that we talk about in our course is it's good to know anatomy. Sure. You're, you're, you know, you're a movement teacher and you might have clients who may want to know what is this working but if we're just simply talking about being an effective and awesome movement teacher, creating a rewarding learning experience for your clients, knowing how to teach movement is not the same as knowing muscles and biomechanics and, and all of those things. It's just not the same. I know I work with people who know a lot about anatomy, but can't get clients to stay because of reasons beyond anatomy right? Like there's a really big difference. Um, and you know, like I was, we have these, these rolling, we have a rolling enrollment. So I, I work with students who are close to finishing and students are in the middle and students are beginning. And we had a, a teaching practical not that long ago and everybody's faces, they look so serious and so scared. And I, the first thing I said was, this is not open heart surgery, everybody. This is Pilates. Just try to have fun. Like, and and you know, 
maybe maybe there are people out there who feel very seriously about Pilates because they're going to be using their skills to rehab people. But even still, in the principles of rehab, it's so simple. Like that's the biggest takeaway from me being in the clinical Pilates course over a whole year. It's just like, oh, create a trusting relationship with your clients, meet them where they're at, both physically and emotionally, and just try to build them up from there. It's like, that's all who you need to do with the exception of a few things here and there for some very specific conditions. But beyond that, there's just really, it's just like you have all the tools that you need and it's not open heart surgery. I keep saying that because it's true. Like I think one of the hallmarks of the Pilates community in general is that we take things so seriously. Everything is so precious. And it's just like, why? <laughs> why are we yeah. doing this? <laughs> I think you're right. And and I think you're right to, I'm not sure if you did this consciously or not, but to implicitly kind of uh, push back on what I was saying there about like, you know, you need to understand something deeply so you can explain it to a, a seven-year-old in short words Otherwise, you don't get it and seek out citations and all that stuff. And I know we agree on that, you know, in principle, but I agree with what you just said about you don't need to be able to understand, to explain or understand the biomechanics of forces on the lumbar discs during footwork in order to be a fucking amazing Pilates teacher, right? No one gives a shit. It's not important, right? It's complete. You could not even know what a freaking disc is, right? Or where in the body it is and still be an amazing Pilates instructor. I 100% endorse what you just said there. The only time I think you, I think it is incumbent on somebody to know that is if they're telling people not to bend their back because it's dangerous on the disc, right? It's like, well, in that case, please develop a deep enough understanding so you can explain it to me in short, simple words like I'm seven years old, why that's dangerous, Right. And if you can't do that, don't say it's dangerous because you don't understand it. I agree. I, I agree with you 100%. It's true. Um, I, and, and you know, like you and I are, are really different. Like you, it is your passion to understand anatomy. You like looking at all of the YouTube videos of the operations, people like getting there. And I'm just like, when I see those, I'm like, Raph, sorry, no, I'm just not. I'm not doing it. Like, I'm talking to the screen. My husband's like, who are you talking to? I'm talking to Raph because I'm not watching this knee replacement surgery. Like, no, I'm not doing it. It's fascinating, though. It's gross. The, knee repla- the hip replacement one is amazing, too. Mm-mm. I wish that you would show animated ones or like clay model ones because I don't like, I do not like looking at human bodies like that. It's just, I can't do it. But see, that's the difference between you and me, but we're both great Pilates teachers. Like you don't need to know how a hip is replaced to be a great Pilates teacher. But if you, like you said, if you wanted to get your facts straight, get your facts straight, if you're going to be, if you're going to be, you know, saying things to people, potentially that could affect the way that they live their lives and they, and the way that they move in the studio and beyond. Like that's a problem that I have with the, the safety culture is that I know that it's coming from a good place. It's coming from good intentions. Nobody wants to see their clients get hurt. I have stories, you know, we know we work with people who've had terrible things happen in the Pilates studio. But by and large, those are all act uh, like reformers. Exactly. Exactly. People eating shit on the reformer because the spring was too light 
or um, they tripped on something, right? Or they lost, yeah, they lost their balance. So that's what's happening. And and again, those are so few and far between. Just it just doesn't happen all the time. Things don't happen. Bad things don't happen. And of course, when they do, it's awful. It's really, really awful. But the whole, you know, so the, the whole idea of keeping people safe is is really a, a duty of care that we have. We have to keep people safe. But I think it can go too far. And oftentimes it does. And it creates these narratives that people don't want to move because they're afraid, you know, they're afraid to move. And that to me is is a worse outcome than trying to keep somebody safe. Right. And we've talked about that before, about, you know, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. And, you know, if we if we wanted to truly maximize safety, we should, you know, wrap people in cotton wool and deep freeze them and, you know, prevent them from ever leaving their front door, certainly keep them out of the Pilates studio. That would avoid all, all risk from Pilates. Um, but you know, it also avoids all the benefits of Pilates. So in, in, you know, and, and we have this in, uh, in, um, screening this, this same exact balancing act in screening. So we look at something like, uh, mammograms for women over 40 or 50 looking for breast cancer, right? And you think that, you know, in principle, we want to screen people so we pick up any potential tumours early on when it's much more easy to treat. And that totally makes sense, right? You think, okay, okay, great. Much better to pick it up when it's tiny and it hasn't had any ill effects and we just cut it out really easily. But then what we don't realise when we just think about that side of things is that there is an actual cost to doing that screening because sometimes we pick up a lump and it's not actually cancerous and we put this woman through all this radiotherapy and blah, 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 and, and there's an actual trauma imposed by the treatment, right? And people die on the operating table, you know, sometimes from an allergic reaction to the anesthetic or whatever it might be, because, or they have radical mastectomies or, or whatever it might be, to remove a lump that was completely benign and wouldn't have caused them any problems, right? So there are false positives that occur and so screening has benefits and costs, right? And so we, and, and this is an empirical question of if we screen people, do the costs outweigh the benefits or not? You know, how many lives do we save by screening and how many lives do we end by screening? And what damage do we cause by screening and what, and what damage do we prevent by screening? And it turns out that somewhere, you know, last I looked at literature a few years ago, somewhere around like age 50, I think, the benefits outweigh the harms, the risks of screening. You know, if you screen twenty-year-old women for breast cancer, you get way too many harm, too much harm, and way too little benefit. By the time women are fifty, you know, you, you the benefit starts to outweigh the harm, and it's worth getting screened at that age. Uh, but it's not a case that more screening is always better, and and more prevention is always better because the prevention has a cost. You know. Um, and that's, that's the same in Pilates. You know, if we want to avoid people ever pulling a muscle, it's great. Just don't ever exercise, you know. But there's a problem with that because now we're we're getting more heart disease and dementia and strokes and obesity and depression and, you know, all of those other things that happen when you don't exercise. <laughs> so, you know, pick your, pick your poison. Pick your poison. I mean, you know, when, as you were saying that about pulling a muscle, I don't – I honestly – and maybe I've jinxed myself, but 
I've never had a client pull a muscle in class. Maybe they pull up sore, but they haven't pulled a muscle. But I was thinking about one of my friends. I'm not going to name names because I'm afraid <laughs> of causing controversy, but I have a friend who works at a Pilates studio and the owner of the studio will ask every client coming in to the studio, where do you hurt? And she's talking about where do you hurt from the last session? But that, again, it's just like it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of concern, but I feel like it comes from a place of complete ignorance. Like what is what is the purpose of you asking this and what what is the good of it? Like exercises can be can be uncomfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable, nor is it supposed to be beautiful. I really, you know, I feel strongly about that too. It's not a useful question, and I'm laughing because when we when we um, when we talk about working with clients with pain and injury, this is module four at Breathe Education. When we talk about pain and injury, one thing that the the students oftentimes do is during a teaching practical, they're going to be teaching um, to other students, and one of the students is the client with an injury. So you know, it's a low back pain or whatever. We we give them the injury and we say, pretend like this client has low back pain. And so when they're doing the teaching practical, inevitably the, the, the teacher who is teaching it will say, how is this exercise? How's your back pain? How's it going for you? How's your back pain? And I will all, the feedback is always the same, which is let your clients come to you if they have an issue, because it's exactly what you said, Raf. It's like, I brought attention. I had you do a body scan by just saying pain. It's like me saying to you, Whatever you do, Raph, do not think about a panda. <laughs> it's like, of course you're going to think about a panda. Don't bring attention to that. And for um, the other thing I, I, you know, I've been telling my students is if you are somebody who has chronic pain, and I've suffered from chronic pain, you're thinking about your pain all the time. It's just with you all the time. It's this person tapping on your shoulder all the time. It's very distracting. One of the benefits for me of working with a Pilates teacher, going to class, not teaching myself, is it it puts me into a flow state where I'm not thinking about my body. I'm just thinking about the movement. So it's like a vacation from my pain. So, you know, it's just don't, but these are the kinds of things to me, it's like if you want to create an environment where you're not, that's not based on fear culture, be thoughtful about your words. Be thoughtful about the things that you're saying. I, th I think, you're, yeah, I, I so much agree with that. And I want to wind this up in a second, but I, I guess the last thing that I want to say is just to add on to what you just said there, that when you have uh, some kind of pain or injury that's been going on for, you know, weeks or, or more, months, years, yeah, and, and we've probably all had something like this, even if it was just a toothache, you know, that at some point 
was impacting us and then then at some later point was completely gone right and that moment when you realize oh crap i haven't thought about my tooth in a week it just hasn't been part of my conscious awareness at all it's like i'm completely unaware of my tooth that's when you know you're you're better right you're done you're fixed you're you're over it right so the goal of rehabilitation is to lose awareness of that body part exactly that's exactly what i told my endodontist when he was asking me about a tooth that had cracked and needed a root canal he's like how does it feel and i said well your teeth should feel dead and this tooth does not feel dead yeah i agree right <laughs> You, yeah. just, you shouldn't be thinking about your back or your elbow or your foot or your whatever on a daily basis. It should just be like, it just works. It just does its thing. Like the hot water service. You only care about it when it breaks. Exactly. Mm. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.